You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is week two, covering Deuteronomy 1 through 4.43. Well, good morning. This is a good sign if I have to call you to attention the first week. Glad to see you're getting to know each other. So my name is Christy Hess, and I serve as co-director of WBF alongside Lindsay Smoker. But more importantly, I am a disciple of Christ and a student of the word just like you. And it is a joy to be able to teach again this semester. Okay, so how did your first week of homework go? Good, all right. If you're new to these workbooks or this study method, it may take a little bit to get in a groove, but stick with it, it will come. And I also wanted to mention, did you see on these divider pages that it says, read the whole passage for the week? So the idea here is that you do that all in one shot before you get into the homework questions. And that's not just busy work, that's intentional repetition to immerse ourselves in the word. I like to use that first read through to look for God and mark his attributes to get my priorities in order before I get to the questions. All right, so we're going to start out this morning by putting ourselves in Moses' shoes for a minute. He's been through so much with the Israelites, and Deuteronomy contains his last words to them, quite literally. So I want you to think of a relationship where you have invested a ton of time training or discipling or raising someone. What is it that you want for that person? My oldest is 13. And at her last birthday, I was like, whoa, we only have a few short years until so much changes. And so, of course, there are practical things she needs to know, like how to drive (laughs) and how to balance her checking account. But there are so many more deeper realities that I'm concerned with. And I would assume the same is true for your relationships. Do they know who they are? Are they prepared for hardship? Do they truly love the Lord more than anything else? Do you ever just wish you could download all the life lessons you've learned into someone else so they don't have to learn the hard way? This is exactly the impression that I get from Moses in Deuteronomy. In the undertone of his words, we can hear a man who has come to know God intimately and has found life in him. And so, of course, he wants the same for these people that he loves. Yet he doesn't start with an exhortation about the future. He begins with a look back. And this is a wise principle that we're going to see again and again. And it's that remembrance fuels faithful obedience. And it's not just the act of remembering. It's the object of our remembrance. Remembrance of who God is and what he's done proves that he's trustworthy And if he's trustworthy, then that informs how we live today. We can actually take him at his word today. We can move forward into the unknown. We can obey even when our eyes can't see the way through. So open with me to Deuteronomy 1. I want the scripture in front of you. And you also want to have your map handy to reference. So the book opens with, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. Here we have author, original audience, and their location as Chris went over last week. 
And now, if you're, if you're looking at the text, I stopped reading where I did because we get to this long list of names that I don't know how to pronounce. <laughs> in fact, there are a ton of names in these opening chapters. Did you notice that? So when I come to a passage like this, I think of it in two layers. First of all, just get your bearings. Figure out the main points from the supporting details. So main points being who, what, when, where, sometimes why, from the supporting details. And then the second layer is, go ahead and look into some of those supporting details if you want. Like, where is this place on the map? And I have no clue who this guy is, so let's try to figure it out. This is why we gave you the map and the timeline on pages six and seven, so you can build into your understanding as much as you'd like to. But regardless, there is a huge timeless truth here, and that is that the story of the Bible is grounded in actual history. God used real people in real places to accomplish his will on earth, and he still does. So the next time you come to a long list of names, Remember the sovereignty of the God who has authored all of history. So after we have our bearings for the present context, Moses begins this look back, starting in verse 6. And he commanded the Israelites to pack up camp at Horeb, that is the region around Mount Sinai, and head to the promised land. This land, mentioned in verse 8, is the first of three covenant promises that God had made to Abraham hundreds of years before. These promises are originally found in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, which I have on the screen. And I'm not going to read it for you, but you can see those three promises highlighted. So the first one is land. The first one's land. Second one is multiplication. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And how many kids did Abraham have at this time? Zero. Third, a blessing to the world. All families of the earth will be blessed through you. Now let's look at this alongside of Deuteronomy 1. In verse 8, we see mention of the land. That's what we just said. And then in verses 10 and 11, we see the other two promises, multiplication and blessing. The reason I bring this up is first and foremost because every word of the Lord can be trusted. What he has decreed, he will bring to pass. But also I think it serves as a great reminder of the big picture of what God is doing through Israel. This is not just about Abraham's family. This is about God setting up his kingdom on earth to dwell with his people setting up his kingdom on earth to dwell with his people. That's why he cares so much about the land and about multiplying the people and about extending his blessing to the whole world. Israel was always meant to be a conduit. They were the chosen people from whom Jesus Christ would come and he is that blessing of salvation to the whole world. And so we never wanna lose sight of that as we go through these stories in the Old Testament. Now, as I came to this first flashback in verses 9 to 18, Moses appointing more leaders, my question was, why does this matter for them right now? Seemed kind of a random story compared to the other things included in these opening chapters. And I think the reason is found in verses 16 and 17. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and what? 
judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. Moses is about to explain the law to these people. That's what verse 5 says. But for a law to work, there must be authority structures in place to uphold and enforce it. And human authority is meant to reflect God's authority. And how does God rule? With righteousness and justice. We see that through the entire course of the Bible. And so I think Moses is calling to mind this standard of integrity for the leaders, that they would reflect God's character. And for the people to submit to this good authority is for their good. This will bring flourishing in their redeemed community. From there, Moses moves on to the people's original refusal to enter the promised land. So compared to the previous account, this is not so distant history and vitally important to remember. The Lord brought them to Kadesh Barnea, right outside the promised land. That's number four on your map. And if you look at verse 21, it says, See the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And he also promised them his presence, right? He said he himself would go before them and would fight for them. So don't miss this. Even though God had sovereignly given them the land, actually receiving the gift required faithful obedience to move forward into the unknown. They actually had to act, put one foot in front of the other, in accordance with the Lord's promises. And a promise is only as good as the character of the promise maker. And so the Lord's command for them to go in and take possession of the land was ultimately a test. Do you trust me? But as you know, the people miserably failed the test. They leaned on their own understanding instead of trusting the character of the promise maker. And verse 26 calls this rebellion, not just a simple mistake. Throughout the remainder of this paragraph, we see the evidence of their mistrust in verse 27, what did they do? They murmured, grumbled against the Lord. In verse 28, the spies' account made their hearts melt. That's fear. In verse 29, what does Moses do but call them to remembrance? Don't be afraid. The same God that fought for you in Egypt and carried you through the wilderness is with you now. Yet in spite of this word, they did not believe the Lord their God. Commentator Christopher Wright says, faith was no leap in the dark, but a perfectly reasonable step forward with eyes open wide to what God had already done in the past and had promised to repeat in the future. And yet, grumbling, fear, unbelief. Lord have mercy on us. Where are you leaning on your own understanding instead of trusting the character of the promise maker? At the root of every complaint, every fear and all lack of belief is the suspicion that God isn't actually who he says he is, that he can't be trusted. 
And that is a lie from the pit of hell that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And so the anecdote is to look back, to remember, because remembrance fuels faithful obedience. He has proven that he is trustworthy, and that informs how we live today. Like any good father, God issues a consequence for their rebellion, and the cost is steep. Instead of entering into the blessing of the Lord, this generation will die in the wilderness. And they respond with this weird pseudo-repentance. The same people who just said, God hates us, he's abandoned us, we wanna go back to Egypt, are now strapping on their swords to go fight the Amalekites like they wanna prove themselves. God said, don't go up, I'm not with you. But they didn't listen and they're defeated in battle. And so begins their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Chapters 2 and 3 of Deuteronomy recount some events from these wilderness years. So get your map in front of you as we go through this. Deuteronomy 2 mentions the Israelites encountering three different people groups as they got closer to the promised land. And all of these interactions have some things in common, which we'll catch at the end. Um, But we're going to practice distinguishing the main points from the supporting details because a lot of names in this chapter. All right, so first of all, look at verse 4. They're passing through the territory of the people of who? Esau, right. Genesis 36 tells us that his other name was Edom. That's a place you can find on your map. You see it? So they're now coming around the eastern side of the promised land instead of the western side like before. And the next region that they come to is found at the end of verse 8. What is that? It's Moab. So you can find that on your map as well. And the final people group is mentioned in verse 19. Do you see it? This one's kind of tucked away. This was the Ammonites. And on your map, you can see they're around the the outer right edge of the map. All right, so all of these interactions have two things in common. The first one is that their land was not for Israel. So God said, don't mess with these people. I've given their land to others. And in this case, it was the descendants of Esau and Lot. Which brings me to my second point. These are all men in um, Abraham's family tree, but they're not in the direct line of the Messiah. Yet God still sovereignly ordained a place for them and drew their boundary lines. So why do we bother with such things? Well, the Spirit inspired these words the same as he did the rest of Scripture. And so it's here for a reason. A timeless truth from this chapter that I pulled out is not only is the Bible grounded in actual history, but God sovereignly authored this history. He moves people groups and kingdoms according to his purposes. Sisters, this is the same God that we worship today. Same God. Are you living in true belief of that? Or do you interpret the events of this world as hopelessly out of control? Psalm 2 tells us that the Lord presides over all of these things. And when the kings take their counsel against him, he just laughs. Because he has established Christ as the king of kings. And one day, every knee will bow to him. What he has decreed, he will bring to pass. So back to our text. 
In verse 24, God is now commanding them to cross the valley of Arnon and to attack Sihon, king of Heshbon. And that's notated on your map with a little crown, I believe. Beginning here, this land was what God had ordained for the nation of Israel. That entire land shaded in red would be their promised land. And verse 25 says, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Keep that in mind as we go into these battles against Sihon and Og. So beginning in verse 30, we see that Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not allow the Israelites to pass through the territory because the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. If you studied Exodus with us, that should sound a little bit like Pharaoh. So here we get a peek behind the curtain of God's sovereignty over the heart of the king. But then his command to the people is, go in and take possession of the land. You must act in accordance with my promises. Do you trust me? And this time the answer is a resounding yes. The new generation seems to have learned something from their parents' rebellion. And remembrance fuels faithful obedience. And so they battle Sihon and the king of Og of Bashan and are overwhelmingly victorious. They capture all the cities, devoting all the inhabitants to destruction. And victory is had because they acted in accordance with the promises of God. That is to say, they trusted in the character of the promise maker. The one who said, do not fear, for I have given them into your hands, has proved worthy of their trust. So on one hand, we can celebrate the faithfulness of God and the victory for the people. But on the other hand, devoted to destruction. It literally says every man, woman, and child. It's a little hard to swallow. What do we do with that? Let me first give you permission to ask really hard questions of Scripture. If something does not square with your understanding of God, Don't look away. Instead, humbly ask the Spirit for understanding. Search the scriptures and work out these questions in community. There's a lot I could say about the Canaanite destruction, a lot. But for the sake of our time this morning, I just have two brief points for your consideration. The first is that this story is set in the context of the entire biblical narrative, it's not in a vacuum. And so we must allow the rest of Scripture to inform how we understand passages like this. Secondly, we need a higher view of God's righteousness and justice. Today's therapeutic society is much more comfortable with God's love and grace. But we must reckon with the fact that apart from Christ, we too would be deserving of destruction. And that's what makes the gospel such good news. These were not innocent or repentant people. As Chris mentioned, they were entrenched in horrific pagan practices. And God finally executed justice on those who defied him. 
as he foretold to Abraham so many years before. You can check out Genesis 15, 16 if you want to look at that. Here's the thing. The Lord does not fly off the handle in rage. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love toward those who fear him, but he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Spirit grant us a wider and a deeper understanding of the character of God. So to summarize these two battles, let's look at their purposes as put forth in scripture. First is what we just mentioned, God's punishment on the wicked. The second was settlement of the promised land. So two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh are finally home, promises fulfilled. Third, Joshua's confidence in the Lord. He's going to be the one to lead them into most of the promised land territory. Deuteronomy 3.21 says, And I commanded Joshua at that time, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. And lastly, as a testimony to the surrounding nations, Word of these victories would spread like wildfire and it would have the effect that God said it would. In Deuteronomy 2.25, I will put the dread and fear of you on the peoples. In fact, you remember Rahab mentions these battles when the spies come to her in Jericho. The Lord himself goes before you and every word of the Lord can be trusted. I don't know about you, but the scene at the end of chapter three stirs compassion in me. Moses is pleading with the Lord to be allowed to enter the land with the people, but the answer is still no. And back in Numbers 20, God banned Moses from the promised land because of his sin. He was certainly not innocent. Yet there's also a sense that Moses is bearing the punishment of the Exodus generation with them. Even in this final chapter of his life, he continues to point to a greater mediator to come. For Jesus Christ, though he was sinless, bore the curse on our behalf. But he would rise victorious, bringing many into new life. And this concludes Moses' look back. He has filled the people's minds and hearts with remembrance. Remembrance of covenant promises, of the horrors of rebellion, and of God's guidance, his provision, his power. And what does remembrance do? Remembrance fuels faithful obedience. What would it look like to live in right relationship with Yahweh? to actually trust his character and therefore to act upon his word. Chapter four, verse one says, and now, O Israel, listen to my statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers is giving you. Given the weight of those memories and all that they have been through, do you feel his sense of urgency? Moses is speaking authoritatively, certainly, but he's also like pleading with the people. 
walk in this way of life. The exhortation of chapter four is a, a sermon of sorts on the first two of the Ten Commandments. Do you remember what they are? You shall have no other gods before me and do not make for yourself a graven image. You're gonna get a review of that in chapter five. So. so who the Israelites are to worship and how they are to worship. Who they are to worship and how they are to worship. The first eight verses of chapter four focus on the need for and the benefits of obedience. And I already read in verse one that this is for their good, that they may live and actually receive the blessings of God's covenant promises. And the second benefit of their obedience is found in verse six. Do you see it? These statutes will be their wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples. One of the purposes of the law is to reveal the lawgiver, and not only to God's own people, but to the surrounding nations. As the Israelites operate in right relationship with God and with one another, their life of their community will be a witness to Yahweh. The reason their law creates such a compelling culture is because it was written by the true king of the universe so that he may dwell with them. His presence and his righteousness brings flourishing to humanity. Verse nine. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Though the benefits of obedience are great, so is the potential to forget. And the moment they forget who God is and what he's done, they're going to default to relying on their own understanding. There's nothing new under the sun. And so the central portion of this chapter is marked with warning after warning for diligence to guard against forgetting, to guard against worshiping the way the pagans do. Moses takes another look back at Mount Sinai from Exodus 19, which this generation did not witness. Yet he's stirring up their remembrance of the stories that they've heard because remembrance fuels faithful obedience. God's revelation at Sinai was meant to instill a deep fear of the Lord, which would guard the people from sin. And as magnificent as Sinai was, there was one issue. They did not see any form of God in the midst of the fire and the smoke. And from the warnings in verse 16 and following, we learn that the human heart is inclined to worship what it can see. This is exactly what Romans 1 warns us against. You read that in your homework. The essence of sin is turning away from all that God is and ascribing our worship to lesser things. And so God warns over and over again, you must not worship me in that way. Remember, in verse 20, The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people for his own inheritance as you are this day. It's not only all that he saved you from, it's that he's brought you to himself. You belong to him. Covenant simply means a legal binding agreement. 
This is an exclusive relationship, like a marriage. God would be their God, they would be his people. In verse 25 and following, he warns them that idolatry will bring destruction and exile from the promised land. Now, if you know your Bible, you know this is exactly what happens, which is kind of depressing to think about at this point in the story. So where's the hope? Well, no surprise, it's in the character of God. He will respond in mercy to the repentant heart. He will not destroy completely. And why? It's because he doesn't forget. God will remember his covenant promises. Every word of the Lord can be trusted. Moses ends this passage with an exultant proclamation of who God is. All that they have heard, all they have seen is meant to teach them there is one true God. This God has loved, chosen, and rescued them, claiming them for his own. And so what should their response be? Loving, faithful obedience. The one who truly knows this God will live in accordance with his word. Verses 39 and 40 summarize this covenant relationship beautifully. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Listen, God's covenant at Sinai required the people's faithful obedience. And I don't know about you, but I certainly could not have upheld such a righteous standard on my own. Turns out they couldn't either. No one can. But this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to live among us and he perfectly kept the law. And not only does his death pay our penalty, but his righteousness gets credited to all who believe in him. That's complete security. There is no longer any danger of being exiled from God's favor. Do you know this God? Do you trust this God? Then remember, remembrance fuels faithful obedience now empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Oh, Father, forgive our forgetful hearts. Just like the Israelites, we know that we are prone to wonder. And I thank you and praise you for your amazing covenant faithfulness that has persisted with your people throughout all of history. And oh, the glories of the new covenant that we are given a new heart and we are given your spirit within us so that this remembrance, this obedience is not on our own strength anymore. I praise you for that. But Father, stir up our minds to remembrance, to look back on who you are, all that you've done, that it may inform how we live today and that we may trust you to step forward into tomorrow. 
We love you and we thank you for your provision and your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.